Well, thank you, men and women, for that really very, very beautiful hymn. I don't know who picked that hymn. I don't know when it was picked or what the planning was regarding that choice on this occasion. But it's one of those humbling times when I'm really humbled that God has chosen that hymn for this occasion. It is so suitable, just perfect for the word that we're going to look at tonight in Jonah chapter 2, the sense of our need of the Savior in our doubting, troubling footsteps and our anxious complaints, that there is one who is able, and the friend, this is closer than any brother. We are turning in the word to Jonah chapter 2. It's good to see you again tonight. I have my welcome uh, to those of Reverend Stuart. Again, thank you for coming along tonight under the word of God, and may God bless our hearts. I'm mindful. I see a few folks who Again, likely in their own churches over the weekend, have not been here before uh, tonight. So you're uh, kind of landing in uh, message number four. We've already covered chapter one of Jonah, but I'm kind of hopeful uh, that if you're a child of God, you're somewhat familiar with the story up to this point. Uh, Jonah's called of God in chapter one to go to Nineveh. He has struggles in that regard and runs the opposite direction, heading into the Mediterranean Sea, uh, where again he's thrown off cross, thrown overboard into the sea, and God sends that great fish to catch him and to rescue him in his mercy. And the theme of these meetings all the way through the week is really the marvelous mercies of God in this book, and I really hope that by the end of the week you're convinced that that is an appropriate title for these studies. I want to try to show you night by night how this book shows us the mercies of our great and glorious God. Let's read chapter 2 tonight, and again, may God be pleased to bless the public reading of his word. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. And then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth clothed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Please bow with me in prayer. Again, as I've been encouraging you, night by night, pray for your own heart right now. These meetings have been well prayed over. Good time of prayer this evening. And in the previous weeks, I know you've been praying for these meetings, but right now you pray for yourself. Pray that God has a word for your soul this evening in His word. Eternal God, we we do come as those who are poor and needy. We we claim afresh the promise. You think upon us that in the marvelous mercies of God, your eyes are upon this meeting. Lord, the God that is glad to send forth the Spirit. Eternal Father, send forth the Spirit tonight. The Spirit purchased by Christ and His precious blood, the promise of the Father. Send forth the Spirit this evening. Speak directly to each and every soul. But your Father, perhaps there's just some individual in this gathering, and this is the night where you're going to meet with them. May they sense thy presence even now. Enable them to pray, Lord, speak to me. Do speak to our hearts tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming to this second chapter, 
Again, I must acknowledge the necessity of allowing the Bible to govern the importance and the meaning of the text. Again, temptation sometimes in the preacher is to really go their own direction out of a text. But the Bible must be the, really the only reason whereby we go in a certain direction in the Word itself. And so when you come to chapter 2, the rest of Scripture makes it very, very clear that Jonah is here a type of Jesus Christ. This is a typical portion of God's Word. A type, perhaps a term not so well known to all of you. It is, I suppose in simple terms, a, a real-life prophecy of the person and work of the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. And so we study the types and we see features of the Messiah. We see uh, ways in which we can identify Him. And even for those in the Old Testament, they were looking for one who would fulfill these types. We, we see the New Testament, we look back and we see the promises of God being fulfilled. The, the types coming to pass and it strengthens our faith and it encourages us in our adherence to Christ Jesus. That Jonah is here a type of Christ is obvious from Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I say this, but that's tomorrow night's sermon. We'll come to that tomorrow evening in more detail. But I want to be clear, some of you may not be here tomorrow night. I am not ignoring the type of Christ in Jonah chapter 2. It's here, the Bible makes it plain, and we'll look at it tomorrow night in more detail. Because I want to see here, Jonah as a man who knows his God. And a man who finds himself crying unto God from the depths. Now, I want to avoid the danger of seeing Old Testament characters uh, like Jonah merely as good or bad examples of faith. I, well, we've got to look at these characters and see, well, how do they point us to Jesus Christ? Men like Joseph and David and here, Jonah, they point us to Christ. Or you don't want to go down the lines of simply using these characters to give moral lessons, although they're there. The Old Testament, Christ and all the Scriptures... I want to remind that. But that said, these men are men of faith. I don't want to see the type without seeing how the Lord is dealing with Jonah personally. As a man. A real man. In a real fish. In the bottom of a real sea. And here he's meeting his gods. I want you to remember three things. This is not the sermon, this is just the things to remember to start with. Jonah, as a book, is a prophecy written to Old Testament Israel. Jonah is testifying to the people about their God. It's his burden that those who read this book would come to know their God, and he's, he's using his own experience to help them to see their God. Secondly, this book displays the God of boundless mercy. Mercies that extend beyond the boundaries of Israel, and mercies that go down to the very depths of a boat and of a sea. Thirdly, remember please from last night that mercy in the Old Testament is more than simply not getting what you deserve. So we often think of mercy in that regard. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve, and mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. It's a simplistic way of thinking of grace and mercy. But in the Old Testament, mercy and grace, they're combined in that word, has said the covenant mercy and grace and kindness of God is broader than simply not receiving what you deserve. It's the mercy and kindness of God that does not only keep us from hell, but is the kindness of God that the child of God enjoys all the days of their lives. God's mercy does keep us from hell. But as Newton understood, his grace has led me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's the mercy of God. And so tonight we see Jonah in the depths. And what's he doing? Well, here's the link. In the depths of the sea, in the depths of the fish's belly, he is laying hold of the covenant mercies of God. 
He's understanding that his only hope at that point is the everlasting, marvelous mercies of God. You see, look at verse 7 through 9. He says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own, here's our word, mercy. And we saw this last night in the mariners. Again, those who were pagan and pluralistic, they were forsaking, they said, the mercy of God. They were observing their lying vanities. They were remembering and worshiping these false gods. And they didn't know the mercy of God. We saw that. And so he says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. What's the next word? Look at your Bibles. What's the very next word in verse number 9? But I'm not like them. They're forsaking the mercies of God, but not me anymore. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. We're seeing here, what's Jonah doing? He's laying hold upon the boundless mercies of God. Of course, the obvious thing is, how does a child of God lay hold upon the mercies of God? How do they lay hold of that practically, realistically? Well, they do so, of course, in the attitude of prayer. Tonight, five observations in this portion about prayer that I want to leave with you. Move quickly. Well, there are five of these things we just see tonight. I trust will be a word in season to your soul. First of all, please note the occasion of his prayer. The occasion is, again, hinted to us in verse number seven. Again, the opening word of that verse, when. That's a word that indicates occasion. When? Well, tell me, when is it, Jonah? When my soul fainted within me. And I will attempt to give some sort of definition to this spiritual experience of fainting. But I, I suspect that most of you have been saved for any length of time will immediately identify with this experience. Sometime in your life you've known what it is to faint in your soul. It's a regular, common experience of the child of God. The word itself is a very interesting word. It's used over in Genesis chapter 30 in the strange events regarding Laban and Jacob and the cattle. And when the cattle are compared, again, Jacob's cattle labels, it says, when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Feebler weaker. The idea of this cattle and the the picture language used in Hebrew has a sense of of cattle sort of swooning with hunger. It rains so much in Northern Ireland that you barely ever see cattle swooning with hunger. The grass is always thick and lush and they're always very, very well fed. So just imagine the scene. By the way, I'm glad I came with the meetings, not the weather, just to make that comment. But moving on, The, the cattle were so very, very weak. And they're, they're swooning and they're feebler and they're, they're faint. And it's a, it's a vivid picture of the spiritual person. And they're, they're trying to get to the house of God, but they're so weak spiritually. They're, they're fainting and they're falling over. And sometimes they, they just lie in their spiritual bed and they, they can't get to the house of God. They can't get to the place of prayer. Such is their spiritual weakness. But the root word that's used here also of this word to faint, also carries a thought of to cover. Again, Hebrew is a strange language, but this root word has the idea of covering involved in it also. And so what you find sometimes in the Old Testament is some forms of this word are translated with the word overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. It's not hard to see the idea. The child of God, suffering from spiritual fainting fits, gets to the point where, due to their weakness, they feel overwhelmed. You can go that direction. You're so faint, you feel overwhelmed. But it goes the other way also, because there are times we feel so overwhelmed, we then feel faint spiritually. This kind of cycle of spiritual experience, overwhelmed and faint. It's an honest description of what the child of God may feel like. Jonah is at the end of himself here. He's come to the end of himself, and 
When he says in verse 7, when my soul fainted, you see how that ties with the thought of being overwhelmed in the previous verses. Look at verse number 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the sea, and thy flood, the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. You see that of literally feeling overwhelmed? He's fainting, being overwhelmed by the depth of his spiritual troubles. It's good to take time to take stock here. Verse 5, he says this, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. Yeah, he's going through a real experience of sinking down into the water. The waters are literally over his heads. And he takes that imagery in prayer and says, that's how my soul feels like right now. Even to my soul, I feel the waters are compassing me about. Dear child of God, I encourage you tonight. Be honest as to how you feel in your spiritual condition this evening. Folks here, again, I lived in Ballymena, raised in Ballymena, in this church 20 years ago. There's something about Ballymena folks, particularly men, and they would never openly admit the feeling of being overwhelmed and fainting. Oh, I couldn't admit that. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. I couldn't admit that when I wake up on a Monday morning, I can't lift my eyes to look towards God in prayer. I would never admit that to my pastor or my friend or my neighbor or even my wife. I trust as we work our way through this material tonight, you will see that it's not unusual for a genuine child of God to feel overwhelmed and fainting in their walk with God. Jonah's condition is self-inflicted. His rebellion against the will of God and running from his duty before God. Remember, he doesn't want to be a prophet anymore. He wants to be away from God's presence. He doesn't want to hear the voice of God. He's trying to run from God. And as he does so, he finds himself fainting as he tries to get away from the Lord. There's no prayer from Jonah in chapter 1. Even when he's told to pray in verse 6 of chapter 1, where they say to him, Get up, you sleeper, call upon thy gods. Even there, even there, there's no record of Jonah praying in chapter 1. It's only when you get to chapter 2, verse 1, and that word then. These these time-stamped words are significant. When my soul fainted, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God. You see, this fainting, overwhelmed state can be due to a turning from God. Maybe that's you right on the spot tonight. The only person you've got to blame for your spiritual depression and lethargy is yourself. You've rebelled against God. You've chosen your own path in your home life, perhaps in your marriage or your church life or in your workplace, whatever it may be. You've decided in your own mind, as we saw earlier on the weekend, you see in your own mind, God says this, but I believe this. I'm going to go my way, not God's way. And what happens? We find ourselves in the depths. Self-inflicted spiritual turmoil is not uncommon. Because, Because God in His marvelous mercies is married to the backslider and does not let them go. You rebel against God, you fight against God, you try to run against God. And what does verse number 3 say? For thou hast cast me into the deep. That's not fair. Jonah, it was the mariners. Their hands were upon you. You come to God in prayer and you say, Thou hast cast me in the deep. The mariners did it. No, Jonah understood exactly what's happening here. The Lord fell upon him. God pointed out Jonah in that boat and the mariners are doing the bidding of God as they cast Jonah into the sea. 
And so Jonah, in that very same verse, verse number three, can say this, All, not the billows and not the waves, but all thy billows and all thy waves passed over me. These are the waves that belong to the sovereign God. And this rebellious child of God finds himself in spiritual turmoil because God is wed to his soul and will not let him go to the point that God casts him into the depths of the sea and the waves go over his soul. God is able to bring Jonah low in order to bring him up. And that might be you tonight. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of Balamini men here right now. I don't know. It's hard to read your faces right now. I'm not sure what's going on in your mind. But it may well be the case that that's exactly where you are right now. For the last 10, 15 years, you've turned against God and you've no heart for God. You're cold and dead in your soul. And you trace it back. You go all the way back and you say, that was the point. I turned against God. And now I am deeply spiritually troubled. And I have no one to blame but myself. That is very, very possible. However, caution is required here. Please, if you're going to have to doze off at some point, don't do it now. Yes, a fainting, overwhelmed spirit can be due to turning from God, But that's not the only reason for a spiritual fainting and overwhelmed spirit. Carelessly preaching this would leave some of you feeling discouraged, fainting and overwhelmed, and you'll go home and you'll think to yourselves, well, I don't know where my point was 15 years ago. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm fainting. I must be like Jonah. So where's my sin? Where's the guilt come? What did I do? Why has God cast me down? And you begin to search and search and search. But that's not your problem. Because it's not only the reason whereby people feel overwhelmed. It's not always due to your sin. So I've got to leave Jonah here for a few minutes. Because I don't want you to stay in Jonah if it's not for you tonight. And so please turn back to the Psalm 61. I want to very quickly turn you to five verses in the Psalter that indicate other circumstances whereby a child of God, walking in faith in God, also comes under the experience of feeling overwhelmed. Psalm 61 And the verse number 2, again it starts, verse 1, Hear my cry, O God. And then he says, verse 2, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I were not directly told in this psalm as to how the child of God could come to this experience. But it's one of the most glorious psalms indicating the strong faith of a child of God. Thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. He's looking to the point where even though he may walk with faith and stay close to God, when it comes to the point he feels overwhelmed, he's still going to turn to his God. Not due to some personal sin but due to some other spiritual experience. Then look at Psalm 77. Each each of these portions are worthy of a full sermon on their own, so uh, you can go back and study them in your own time. Psalm 77, the verse number 3. Again, it begins, I cried unto God, verse 1, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord, my sore ran in the night. And then verse 3, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was... Overwhelmed, Selah. The psalm, again, is someone who's troubled with the thought that God has forgotten to be gracious. Yeah, this is a battle of faith at this point, no doubt about it. But not necessarily due to some personal sin issue, but just the fact that we live in this world, sometimes it's hard to see God. It's like Job in Job 23. He goes to the right hand, the left hand, forward and back. He can't see God, but he says, but thou knowest the way that I take. 
Similar idea here. He's, he's wondering, where is God? And he feels overwhelmed. And Psalm 102, over in Psalm 102, it's the third of these five, Psalm 102. And here it is in the inspired title of the psalm. It's entitled, A Prayer of the Afflicted. When he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. And in this, he uses some wonderful picture language. I am like a pelican in the wilderness, an owl in the desert. And he says then in verse number 8, Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. He's describing again this, this sense of spiritual warfare. And again, there are times in the Christian life that uh, the, the devil and his, 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 his minions are coming along and they, they attack us and we feel the sense of being overwhelmed in spiritual conflict. We see the same point. We're afflicted, overwhelmed. Psalm 142. In Psalm 142 in the verse number 3. Okay, note each of these psalms, they often begin with this reference, I cried unto the Lord. And then verse 2, I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily a snare for me. Again, he's in the key, if you can think of all the times that David finds himself in trouble, through the hands of Saul, or through the hands of Absalom, his son, and he finds himself wrestling again with God's providence. I look on the right hand, and behold, there's no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. This is not somebody who's doubting the ways of God. So overwhelmed because they've given up on God. This is somebody who's wrestling with God in the place of prayer, but experiencing the sense of feeling overwhelmed. Then the next Psalm, Psalm 143, and the verse number 4. Again, the same idea of the enemy persecuting his soul. Verse number 3, Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed, within me. Now, you, you can understand why Jonah feels as he does. What a foolish, foolish man to believe he could run from God, disobey God without consequences. We can understand that. But David and the psalmist, they show us in their experience that this sense of being overwhelmed does not just belong to a prophet in the belly of the fish. Isn't that good? You're not going to find yourself in the belly of the fish anytime soon. But you might find yourself overwhelmed in your walk with God. Afflictions can come for various reasons, but we can come before God honestly and admit we're overwhelmed. And if you can't do it to your pastor or your friend or your husband or your wife, at least tonight, get before God. Say, Lord, this is exactly how I feel. I'm fainting and I'm overwhelmed. Christians don't get a pass from profoundly challenging afflictions and the impact they can have upon our walk with God. Challenge the point of fainting. And you know, please, brother or sister, if you're on the end of someone coming to you tonight and saying, you know, the preacher really, he put his finger right on my trouble. If you're the one hearing someone saying, I feel overwhelmed, I'm fainting. Be slow to judge, quick to pray. Put an arm around them. And get before God with them in the place of prayer. Because whether you're a Jonah or a David, the situation, again, may vary, but the cure doesn't. You know the words, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of His understanding. 
He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You know it. When you are fainting, the only place to go is to the one who does not faint. You have no other hope. And so see, secondly, please, the location of this prayer. If we're seeing the occasion as this man, when he says, when, when he faints, the location, of course, is given to us in verse 1 and 2. He prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And again in verse number 2, out of the belly of hell cried I. Now, the parallels there have encouraged some of the liberals to suggest that Jonah is allegorizing his spiritual experience. He's in the depths of discouragement in the grave. The word for hell that's used here, Sheol. He's in the depths of discouragement. It's just like this picture language. Now, we know that on Saturday, this is a literal fish here. People try and, you know, I understand this. There are those, and they'll try to give an account of this man or that man, and they were in a fish, and, you know, they didn't die. And you can look up nice and geographic or somewhere, and you'll find some account somewhere of this. Some man was in a fish and got out again, and that was okay. You know, I, I, I don't care. To be quite honest, interesting story. But even if no one, was ever swallowed by a fish and survived. If that never, ever happened to anybody before or since, it still doesn't mean that it didn't happen to Jonah. It doesn't matter. If it happens to no one else, if it's humanly absolutely impossible for a man to be swallowed and survive, if that's impossible, we believe in the God of miracles. And whatever happening here, it's a miracle that he's been preserved by God in the fish's belly. But having said that, for us now tonight, simply note this is, to put it mildly, an unusual place for prayer. And the fact that it's recorded is a blessing to our souls. A word for your heart tonight, or perhaps a word to store up for the future. Because Jonah is here praying in a place of hopelessness, and a place of darkness. And the encouragement to your heart tonight is that there is no place too far from the ear of God. You can't go too far from the ear of a God who is omnipresent. You can't go too far. Now, you never want anyone to walk away from the Lord. You don't want that in your friends, your family. You don't want them to walk away from the Lord. But you know when they do, you can go alongside them and say, you know, you can't run so far that God won't hear your prayers. You, you can never go that far. It's impossible. And Jonah praying from the depths of the sea proves that. It also proves that there's no time, and it's never too late to pray to God. You know, in spiritual warfare, the devil comes to us and said, Ah, now you're praying, huh? Aye, right now, you're now fainting and overwhelmed. You're in the depths of discouragement and despair. Of course you're going to pray now. You should have prayed five years ago. That's what you should have prayed. God would have heard you then, but not now. Uh, Jonah is in the very depth of discouragement, and it's still not too late for him to pray to God. He can't sink too low for prayer. I brought a wee friend with me tonight. This is a little book. It's called Jonah's Portrait. I was given it by a friend and the Malvern Church a number of years ago, and it was small enough to fit on the airplane and bring it across through this bag. A man called Thomas Jones. I didn't know a lot about Thomas Jones, but he's from Wales. And again, he was born in 1752 on my birthday, a few years earlier. But on my birthday, we share our birthday. He was a compatriot of a man called Thomas Charles. And if you go to the bookshop, this is a wee plug for you, Ian. If you go next door, there's a biography of Thomas Charles of Bala, and these men were involved in Bible production in the Welsh language. Thomas Jones wrote this beautiful book called Jonah's Portrait. Again, mid, this was printed 18, Roman numerals, 1836. Let me read to this section. It's really wonderful. We see that a person cannot sink too low for prayer. 
He may sink into many deep and dark pits and tremendous gulfs. From them all he may cry unto the Lord in prayer. And if he cries in faith, he may expect deliverance. This is the bit that struck me again this morning. I pulled it this morning, reading this morning. The pits may be very deep, yet far deeper are the mercies of our God. He missed the word marvelous, but apart from that, he did okay. That's the truth, folks. You can't go too low not to pray to God for his marvelous mercies. And if the devil is saying to you right now, you've gone too far from God, he can't go further than Jonah. And yet God heard his cries. The occasion and the location of his prayers. Note thirdly, please, the direction of his prayers. We're told, again, there's directional clues in this section, verse number 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came unto thee into thine holy temple. Again, if you're reading with care, you'll note earlier on in the section, verse number 4. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Don't miss, by the way, those wonderful, it is a wonderful book of literature. The inspiration of God to move in this man to write these things and to bring these things together. I'm out of your sight, God, but I'm going to look towards you. Beautiful. His eyes are towards the temple. Language, very significant to the Old Testament saint of God, the idea of praying towards a temple draws upon the old covenant promises of God. It would give the Old Testament saint assurance in prayer, and it points us in the right direction again tonight. Why would you hope in prayer? You're cast out of God's sight. What is your only hope in prayer? It's not by looking to yourself. It's by looking towards the holy temple of God's. See, what is our assurance of God's ear? By remembering the Lord, verse 7. And by praying into that holy temple. And for this, you've got to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 8, please. And of course, 1 Kings chapter 8 is the section where Solomon engages in dedicating the temple of God. A very, very important chapter in the Old Testament Scriptures. The tabernacle is now uh, being given over to the temple. David had the idea. Solomon is the builder. And the temple of God is erected to the glory of God. But when it comes to this temple, look what it says, 1 Kings chapter 8 and the verse number 30. Solomon praying here to God, And hearken thou, O Lord, he would say, to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel. Note this. Young people, do you see this? What does it say? When they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Solomon understands that God is not contained in any earthly temple. He understands that. He knows that God abides in the heaven of heavens. That's his dwelling place. The earth is his footstool. But when it comes to the temple, and the people pray towards that temple, when their eyes are towards a temple, then God in heaven hears their prayers. Jonah knows the Bible. He knows the Word of God. He understands his eyes are towards the temple, and he reminds himself of the assurance of the Word of God. Solomon, under inspiration, when the presence of God came upon the temple, when you pray toward this place, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And not only is the assurance of God's willingness to hear, it's also the assurance of God's willingness to forgive. Verse number 33 when thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which it gives unto their fathers. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee. Note the language again. If they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them. You, you'll know Daniel understood this. He knew what it was to pray towards a temple, even in a far-off land. And again, of course, in the Old Testament, there's, there's a physical dwelling place. 
There's a temple of God. And the new covenant is not the same. But the application is clear. Because the lesson for us is the temple is the place of God's special presence when God manifests Himself to His people upon the ground and the merit of sacrifice. You look at this chapter and the verse number 6. What did the priest do? The priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. The ark of the covenant. You go back to Exodus and the instructions of this ark. This box-like structure made of shitting wood, incorruptible wood, overlaid with gold. The person of Christ, God and man, into which are placed the tables of stone. Those broken tables upon which goes the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat goes the shed blood. The ark of the covenant goes into the temple. And what happens in verse number 10? And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. The ark's brought in. The presence of God, the blood-sprinkled ark, manifesting God's willingness to forgive and to receive the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. And then Solomon prays, when our people, when they pray towards this temple, you'll hear in heaven, and more than that, when they pray in faith towards this temple, you'll forgive their sins. Did Jonah ever, ever need to remember that? He had no hope. His only hope was in the sacrifice offered for sin and uncleanness. His only hope was in the presence of God hearing his prayers. He's overwhelmed. He's fainting in spirit. But his eyes, if I can put it this way in simple terms, his eyes look to Calvary. He looks forward to Calvary. And dear child of God, the Word of God tells you tonight, if you're overwhelmed in your spirit, your only hope is to remember the Lord and look towards the cross. Because at the cross, you have assurance of the saving mercies of God. And at the cross, you have the security of the keeping mercies of God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If any man sins, he's, he says, no sin, he's a liar. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and He's the propitiation of our sins. Where's forgiveness found? It's found at the cross. You know this. But you might be a Jonah tonight having rebelled against God and you've got to get your eyes back to Calvary. That's your only hope for God to lift you out of the depths by remembering there's forgiveness in the marvelous mercies of God. And He's willing and able and just to forgive your sins tonight. Beyond that, he that spared not his own son, but delivered up for us all, how shall he also with him freely give us all things? You're overwhelmed and you're discouraged, you're cast into the depths. The Calvary of Christ is the only hope you have for grace to be sufficient in time of need. So whatever the reason, whatever the cause, the cure is the same, remembering God and putting your eyes towards the temple. Will you bear with me to draw my friend again just for a few moments? Again, he puts so beautifully. Let me find the place this time. Again, a wonderful way of describing the mercies of God. He says this, The penitent may cry, Though my sins be as scarlet and my transgressions as the sea at sand of the sea, though I have sinned grievously against heaven and justly deserved to be cast down to hell, yet will I look again towards the living temple the mercy seat in Christ. The backslider who repents should say, though I am the chief of sinners who have crucified the Lord afresh and sinned away my privileges and my graces, yet will I look again to that sin-forgiving Jesus who receives returning prodigals and blots out numberless transgressions. The penitent, the backslider, 
The deepest sufferers on earth should not despair. There is help laid on one who is almighty to save. That's the direction of the prayer. Fourthly, the revelation in this prayer. I just want to point something out. I'll move on very quickly. When you read Jonah chapter 2, those of you who know your Bibles will think to yourself, this all sounds terribly familiar. And commentators have rightly observed that Jonah's prayer here is bathed in the language of the Psalter. He knew his Bible. And he takes his Bible and takes that language of spiritual revelation before God in prayer. You read your Bible to learn more about God. Well, let me encourage you to read your Bible to know how to pray to God. To give you language, the inspired language of God, to seek the face of God. Again, I've been in this church a number of years ago now, and praise God, in the last number of days, I see things haven't changed. The times of prayer are times when men and women of God offer up prayers that are biblically saturated. Young people, if you have any time and any sense, come and sit in these prayer meetings and listen to men of God praying the Bible. Seriously. What it will do for your soul now and in the future, being bathed in the place of prayer, hearing hearing spiritual men and women seeking God in biblical terms. And it's not about direct quotations and who can quote the most Bible verses and all that. That's not it at all. It's about the recognition that those who are praying there, it's not about quoting verbatim. It's having the Spirit of the Word of God in the place of prayer. They, they, They breathe the Bible. And it comes out in prayer. That's what God's will is for us. Just a comment. Finally, the conclusion of this prayer. The conclusion of this prayer. We see three things. We see recovery, resolution, and recognition. Recovery is here. Verse 2, God heard his voice. Verse 6, God brought him out. Because I've said, I've tried to pick a picture of, of tremendous spiritual trouble, but I don't want to leave you in the place that there's no hope. Jonah again shows us that out of such depths, there can be genuine recovery. God can lift us up. Not, not through some you know, particular psychological experience. It's the work of the Spirit of God coming alongside us and bathing our minds in the promises of God's secured by the person of Christ and His passion on the cross. There's hope for you, dear soul, tonight. Uh, Not always, or probably say ever, will your recovery be as dramatic as Jonah's. But the God who rescues Jonah knows how and when to rescue you. You're not too difficult for God. You're not. It leads also then to Jonah's resolution. You've got that down in verse number 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Well, we saw some of these things in the mourners, didn't we? Verse number 16. They offer sacrifice. They make vows. I'm not going back over that stuff. But you simply find this. You find this often in, in spiritual testimonies. That there, there are those... Um, and God touches the heart of a fainting saint, that they recover with, with, with renewed zeal to worship God and to work for God. You, you suddenly can see them as a, as a pastor. You can see them in the house of God, and they're singing with renewed gusto. And they're first to, to volunteer for this or that. They, they want to serve God and to worship God. Why? Because of the recognition in verse number 9. Salvation is off the Lord. Now this definitely is worth a message on its own. It's not going to happen this week. I'm just going to mention it here. You know, when you're first saved, remember those days? When you were first saved and you woke up that morning 
having sought the Lord perhaps the day before, you wake up in the morning and you say within your soul, you may have never read Jonah 2.9, but you say in your heart, salvation is off the Lord. You know that to be true. But it's also the case when we are restored out of our sorrows, when we lay hold on God's mercy, we have with renewed confidence the ability to worship God with these words. These are words of worship and confession, and we confess with our hearts, salvation is of the Lord. When we recognize that salvation is of God's sovereign will, our hearts resonate with the language of Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And we've come to know the mercies of God again. And we recognize those mercies are of God's sovereign kindness. He's able to give and withhold of His sovereign will. And if we've come to know the mercies of God, we say, Amen, salvation is of the Lord. He showed His mercy to me. We understand that salvation is of the Lord's sovereign promise. We feel we're cast out of God's sight. But then He restores us and we say to ourselves, He is is my God and I am His person. And we echo the covenant promises, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we say with every every fiber of our being, we say, salvation is of the Lord. We understand the salvation is of the Lord's sovereign power. God sent His Son The Father and the Son send forth the Spirit. And through the power of God, salvation is accomplished and applied to sinners like me. The Son of God who loved me. Who gave himself for me. How's your worship going today? Is your heart thrilled with the thought, salvation is off the Lord? As you meditate upon the Word of God, as you think upon your own walk with God, you come before God and you say, Lord, you've saved me and kept me, and you'll keep me by your almighty power. Over the course of eight meetings, there's going to be different messages for different people. I just pray this morning that this is a word for someone tonight. don't know who you are. You may be watching on, listening in. I have no idea. But I know, I know that there are many in the church of Christ and they are spiritually faint and they feel overwhelmed in their walk with God. Then, dear child of God, remember the Lord and look toward His holy temple. No other hope but in Christ Jesus, the Son of God who loved you. Give himself for you. Please close with me in prayer. Eternal God, we think again of the words of the hymn that was sang in our hearing. I need thee, precious Savior. Oh Lord, I think we can all say amen to that. Draw near tonight. May we rejoice in Thee. May each and every one leave this building saying, Salvation is off the Lord. You are the eternally kind God. We worship Thee for Your marvelous mercies. Continue with us. May we know Your grace and Your favor in Jesus' name. Amen.